Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about the Jewish Revolt, which I know Tom Holland thinks is the wrong title for it because he's going to explain why. I mean, he's going to explain why it wasn't Jewish and maybe why it wasn't a revolt. I don't know. Uh, but before we get back into the narrative, I just want to say this. A few weeks ago, Tom, we did a, um, a whole series of podcasts about Russia and Ukraine for the beginning of the war. And you said that at uh, one point, oh, well, you know, I wonder if anyone's listened to this in Russia, almost certainly not, because it's been because of the clampdown on information and so on. But actually, we have had a message. Uh, I will just call him B because we don't necessarily want to give away who he is. He says um, he wants to thank us for the recent episodes for him, a Russian. It was interesting and important. He says it's very important that we... Uh, understand and the other European listeners understand that the current war is not the Russian people's war, but the war of their president. Millions of us are against this war. He says, he says in one of your episodes, you've expressed doubts whether Russian people can hear you at all. Yes, we can. And we do. And we are listening to you uh, through various technological wheezes uh, to find their way around the, the Russian government's firewall. So Tom, that's quite um, inspirational, isn't it? That's quite, quite nice to hear. Yeah, and it's very important to remember that, as he says, um, you know, there are plenty of people in Russia who are very opposed to what's happening. Well, there's brave people who have been arrested at demonstrations yeah. and so on. Um, Braver than I would be. 15 years in prison, they risk. Yeah, absolutely take, take our hats off to them. Right. Let us um, uh, move back 2,000 years or just under 2000 years. So we were with Brian Adams in the summer of 69 <laughs> yes. and uh, Vespasian has become emperor. The Jewish revolt, or I know you don't think it is the Jewish revolt. Well, Jewish Judean, is fine, but, but, but I think Judean is more accurate way. The Judean re on. revolt is in full swing. Mm -hmm. So Vespasian, presumably Tom, it must be one of his kind of foreign policy priorities. It's not really foreign policy, is it? It's kind of, he would see it as domestic policy. Then he needs to crack down on this straight away to assert his, you know. Well, yeah, you might think that actually that's not the case. Um, so, so Vespasian basically has, he's essentially everywhere that's in rebellion has been crushed. The only places that aren't are Jerusalem and um, a couple of fortresses, one of which is Masada. So Masada was the palace built by Herod on top of the mountain. Yeah, the, the great palace complex, which has been occupied by who, well, we'll maybe come to that later. Yeah. Um, so Vespasian basically, he... Judea is, is not now sufficiently important for him to bother with. He has much bigger fish to fry. So he goes to Alexandria and then he goes to Rome. Um, he, set, he sells for, for Rome in, um, in the spring of 70. And what he's done is his son, Titus, yeah. has been with him, has been commanding one of the legions. Um, and he entrusts the command of uh, the suppression of the, the conquest of Jerusalem to Titus. And Titus has with him a very, very interesting and perhaps unexpected character, a man called Julius Alexander, who'd been the prefect of Egypt, which is, you know, Dominic, as you'll know, the richest province in the whole the Roman basket, Empire, yeah. the great breadbasket. And so therefore no senator is allowed to, uh, to serve as its prefect. Um, so this Julius Alexander is not a senator, but hugely trusted. He's 
worked his way up through the Roman military, held a number of administrative posts. Now, the thing that's interesting about him is that he is a Judean. And in fact, he is the son of an Alexandrian Judean who had paid for the great gates of the Temple of Jerusalem to be silver plated. So the fact that Titus's deputy is a Judean, I think, is sufficient to complicate the sense that here we have a, you know, it's, it is it is just Romans and Jews, as the, the title of our episode yeah. suggests. And then, of course, also, we you know, there is Yusuf, this guy who has um, proclaimed that Vespasian is... Oh, so uh, he's totally Vespasian. turned his coat now, has he's, he, Yusuf? He's totally turned his coat, yeah. Well, I, but I, because I think he feels quite legitimately that God is on the side of the Romans, that Jerusalem is doomed, and that yeah. therefore, this, you know, what God wants is for the Judeans to surrender to, to Rome and to, to resume their role under under Roman rule. So this raises a really interesting question, Tom, the fact that you've got Julius Alexander and you've also got Yusuf. How much is this a an, inter, a, 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 an inter-Nesine kind of Judean thing? I mean, there must be quite a lot of Judeans who think, God, I wish the revolt had never happened. Who are these absolutely. clowns who are, Yeah, absolutely. Know, uh, yeah. I, I suppose it's impossible for us at this distance to have any sense of the numbers or the proportion, presumably. Well, we can say that it, it spans from high to low. So from high, um, Herod Agrippa is also riding with Titus and also going is uh, Berenice, his sister, who has begun yeah. an affair with Titus. So, you know, Berenice is not only in Titus's train, but actually in his bed, right. probably by this stage. Right. Um, but we also know that there are lots of people in Jerusalem who, who are frantic to get out and to surrender. And so, um, you know, that passage from the gospels that you quoted Jesus yes. saying you know get out there are lots of people who do try and do that the problem is that um there are enough people in jerusalem who who know that they have no way out they know that they are going to be you know suffer terrible death if they surrender because of the role that they've played either in the original revolt or in the annihilation of the roman legions at beth Haron. and they are the ones with the weapons uh, and so they are the ones. They are the ones who are in a position to determine policy. So they sort and of so double when, down, basically. Yeah, they double down. And so when the Romans arrive in front of of Jerusalem, Titus has four legions, this, you know, large quantities of auxiliary soldiers, huge quantities of artillery. Um, you know, he he waits for he waits for the Judeans to surrender. They don't. There are lots who want to surrender, but the people in charge, the people with the ability to decide what policy should be. Uh, you know they have waded in blood so far that you know there's no going back basically. quite a familiar pattern yeah so yeah. so titus uh launches the attack um so where what what, what what year are we now are we 70 so we're now we're now in spring 70 yeah spring of 70 and jerusalem is a very very hard nut to crack and the siege of jerusalem is the bloodiest most brutal the most challenging that a Roman army has faced since the destruction of Carthage almost two centuries previously. Uh, and the reason for that, as I said, is that there are, lo- there are basically three great lines of walls that have to be breached. So there's an outer wall in the north, and then there's kind of inner wall, and then a, a, a wall kind of in between them. Yeah. You have a, a fortress called the Antonia, which had been the Roman military fortress, and that is next to the great rock of the temple, which is also basically a fortress. So to capture Jerusalem, you have to go through three walls and you have to capture the Antonia and you have to capture um, the temple. Yeah. And even then there are, you know, there's the great palace of Herod that's also been fortified. So that too has to be taken. So it's a very, very tough ask. 
but um the romans are you know not the the elite fighting force that they are for nothing yeah anyone's and so they, it, they are they smash through the outer wall they, they invade from the north again as um gallus had done and they occupy the whole of the kind of what you know this 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 new town which had been built north of the old you know the old central city and they occupy it and having done that titus arrays all his legions in full battle order um armor shining uh horses lined up auxiliaries lined up standards glittering and gleaming with the aim of intimidating the judeans to surrender and i think still at this point his aim is essentially to try and get back to the status quo he wants to get back so he you know he wants to round up the 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 ringleaders to uh, to kill them to execute them uh punishment will certainly be inflicted but essentially you know he's got herod agrippa with him in his train he probably wants to to return to a situation where herod agrippa can administer the temple where yeah. there are kind of tame priests installed where once again jerusalem can kind of provide a center for roman administration over the region um you know, he doesn't want to obliterate the entire city. That would be, you know, raise issues that at this stage he doesn't want to have to face. Yeah. But the Judeans continue to resist. Jerusalem does not surrender. And so what Titus then does is he moves in for the kill and he does this in two ways. The first is he builds a huge great wall around uh, Jerusalem to to block everybody in. And that's okay, what Jesus yeah. alludes to in, in, I mean, that's in, very, his, in his prophecy. That's that, worrying that, when you've been holding out against the siege and the besiegers start to wall you in, then you know absolutely. something terrible is coming. And by this point, all the kind of the woods, the parks for which Jerusalem had been famous have all been leveled for around yeah. you know 10 miles um, to build siege engines, to build ramps uh, and to build this wall, which is completed in five days. And from now on, it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to forage food, to forage for food, or to launch attacks, or to um, still more to try and escape. Yeah. And anyone who is captured, what the Romans do is they, what what trees remain, are planted in the kind of the rubble of the old, of the new town that the Romans have occupied, and they are crucified there. And we're told that um, the, the soul, the legionaries, to amuse themselves, and because they're so full of hate for the resistors and you know among the, the kind of the, the heat and the the stench of blood and and uh, dust that they tie their prisoners in increasingly inventive and cruel ways i know i've already uh, i mentioned this in the crucifixion episode so these crucifixions are yeah. you know designed to to be as grotesque as possible and so the defenders looking out from their walls see this great forest of their compatriots kind of writhing and twisting nailed or bound to, to to trees i mean kind of horrible gruesome spectacle and this is um uh women and children as well as men or if they they haven't all left probably men it's probably fighters yeah probably men so what's happened to the to the women and children well they're trying to get out so one of the things that um that happens is that people swallow their gold and then go out and then they kind of you know they have a dump and and take the gold out from the yeah, that's from nice. the poo. That's a nice image. Um, but the uh, v- various um, Syrian auxiliaries discover that they're doing that, and so whenever they get prisons, they slit open the stomach <gasps> to try and feed them, to, to grab the gold out. So that's oh, an added complication that that people face. And so increasingly, people just stay inside the city, and um, you know, people are beginning to starve because the the fighters, the the people who are leading the resistance, are monopolizing the food, and so yeah. people just start to to die in the streets. 
uh, and their bodies get tipped over the walls and they start kind of littering the various ravines. So presumably huge dysentery, cholera yeah. or whatever. I don't yeah, know. it's unspeakable. Um, the conditions yeah. are unspeakable. Yeah. But the Judeans continue, the, the fighters continue to resist. Um, the Ro- Titus orders the Antonia to be stormed, the great fortress. Uh, and this again is a kind of brutal, exhausting process. So great, um, great ramps are built, uh, The Judeans have tunneled underneath them. They kind of set these tunnels on fire. The ramps collapse. Titus orders them to build it again. The wall comes down. The Romans storm it. And now they've got to get into the temple. And again, Titus levels the the Antonia. They build the ramps up on the temple, build it on the other side of the wall as well. And finally, what Titus decides that he's he's had enough. So they set fire to uh, to, to the great gates. These gates had been silver plated by um, his deputy's father. The silver melts, the wood implodes, the fire starts to spread and to, um, it, it lights up the colonnades that surround the great central, the great outer court of the temple. Uh, and the legions are able to force their way in. But the Judeans are still holding out in the inner sanctuary. And now Titus has to decide what he's going to do about the mm-hmm. temple. Is he going to incinerate it or is he going to um, try and spare it? And this is hugely contested because the one account we have of it is written by a Judean. And I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers when I say that it's Yusuf, who in due course will go on to become a Roman citizen and take the name of Josephus. Yes. Uh, And Josephus tells us that Titus wanted to spare it. But Josephus is trying to square two very different things. One is he wants to keep the favour of Titus and the other, he wants to explain how it is that um, the temple came to be destroyed because he remains a very devout Judean. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that Titus wanted to spare the temple, but that God had destined it for destruction is very, very important to him. So whether that's actually what happened or not, we, we don't know. One thing that perhaps um, counters the uh, the idea that um, the temple was set on fire by mistake, which is what Josephus says happens, is that... Uh, the treasure of the temple is um, taken out and kept. And well, how would you question. do that if the temple was on fire? Tom, so, there's a question from from one of our listeners, Stephen Clark, history teacher. He says, it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark question. What happened to the Ark of the Covenant and the other sacred objects that were in the Jerusalem temple? Are they in a where- American warehouse somewhere in the Midwest? Well, the Ark, the, Co- the Ark of the Covenant uh, is not there. Uh, as far as we know, um, it kind of vanishes with, in the with the uh, the Babylonian sack of Jerusalem. Okay, um, but but the great you know the, there's the great kind of the menorah. There's a great table, uh, all made of gold. These are treasures that are taken, and so one implication of that might be that the legions had gone in, they had stripped the temple, and then they'd incinerated it. Yeah, I mean the, the honest answer is we will never know. We we, okay. we cannot know. So the destruction of the temple. I mean this is an absolute body blow not just to the defenders but to every judean because this is the holiest place for judeans on the face of of the yeah. earth uh so the horror of it is hard to overemphasize but even after its destruction even when it's just a kind of smoking black and rubble the judeans continue the fight they withdraw to to herod's palace and it takes another month for that to be taken and then once that has been taken titus orders the entire city to be destroyed except for a stretch of wall and three of the great towers so that people in future ages would be able to look at it and be able to gauge the scale of what it was that the Romans had done 
in taking this great and famous city. But everything else is absolutely flattened. And where do the people go who lived there? Or are they all dead? They're enslaved. Right. So they are just yeah, taking slave dead, markets they're dead. and traded. Yeah. So the, the best looking, the tallest, the most handsome captives are taken to Rome to uh, adorn Titus's triumph. And um, the rest are sold to the slave markets. But this is not the end of the revolt, though, Tom, right? No. So Titus goes back, having having uh, done his stuff. And whereas previously there hadn't been a legion installed in Jerusalem, now a legion is plonked absolutely on the heart of what had been Jerusalem. So that's one of the reasons why the wall is kept. So it can serve as a kind of outer ring for, for the legionary base. Uh, and it's uh, the 10th legion, which is what absolutely has an absolute kind of crack. It's, it's, it's absolutely kind of an elite legion. Yeah. Um, and... Order is, you know, it's uh, Judea is definitely at this point constituted as a province, and the responsibility rests on the uh, the guy given command of this new province to uh, crush the last remaining holdouts. And the very last holdout, uh, famously, is Masada. So that's Herod's palace that was on the rock. Yeah, yeah. So that that's Herod's palace, uh, and that is. Um, very, very difficult to take, but the Romans take it. Um, How? How do they 73? take it? They, they sort of scale the mountain? Well, um, according to Josephus, who was not there. Right. And so again, this massively complicates our, our ability to know what actually happened. Supposedly, they build a great ramp. I mean, mm. you know, as they had done in Jerusalem, but this is on an even larger scale. Uh, and the story goes that um, the uh, the rebels on the top, when they see that Masada is doomed to fall, all commit suicide rather than be taken. Yeah, that's so the, the that's first in. The one thing that most people know about yeah. the Jewish revolt, I would say, is that yeah. the, the last defenders yeah. kill themselves. Rather. And and how true do you think that is? Well, <laughs> so how, how true is any of this? Um, I mean, the, the the basic outlines, I think, are definitely true. Um, you know, clearly Judea does blaze into revolt. Yeah. Clearly Jerusalem is destroyed. Clearly Masada is captured. Uh, and there is the evidence of Josephus's record. He, he writes a history. And presumably archaeological. And there's archaeology. Yeah. yeah. So there's archaeology at, both at Jotapata, where Josephus had been taken prisoner, and at Masada. The, the evidence is, you know, intriguing and fascinating and, and, and being done. So... How How is it that Josephus comes to write what he writes? Because it's not at all obvious that, that a Judean would write an account of this terrible event. Uh, and why is it that we know, in a, we, we know so much about this revolt? Yeah. And there are three basic reasons for that, I think. The first is that this revolt is not cast by the Flavians as a revolt. It's incredibly important to Vespasian and indeed to Titus, both of whom are kind of upstarts. They have no background. They have, um, you know, there's nothing about them that would ever have marked them out as potential Caesars. That's why Nero had originally entrusted Vespasian with the, with the command. What they can do is say, well, you know, we are uh, Vespasian can say, I am a proper imperator. Imperator, the word we translate as empire, can also be translated as a, 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 a general who has prevailed yeah. on a battlefield. So Vespasian is a proper Roman in that sense. He has won a great victory. And that's why he, he and Titus are awarded a triumph, which is this kind of great procession through the streets of Rome where you have conquered an enemy that and, and brought that a enemy. Sort of worthy into, enemy, like Cleopatra or like 
Pyrrhus well, like Cleopatra, like great Cleopatra, figures from the past. Yes, yes. So, so, so like Cleopatra, but not Antony. So Augustus had celebrated a triumph over Cleopatra, but not Antony, because you cannot celebrate a triumph over fellow Romans. So right. Vespasian, Vespasian's great triumph is his victory in the Civil War. That is what has led him to be emperor. But he can't celebrate that. Yeah. Because that is absolutely not the done thing. Now, the problem for Vespasian and Titus is that actually you can only celebrate a triumph if you have conquered an enemy that had not previously been a part of the empire. The Judeans had been inside the empire, hadn't they? Tom? They absolutely had. They absolutely had. And so this is a huge problem for the Flavians. And so they bring the full weight of their propaganda um, expertise to bear on the problem, which they do absolutely brilliantly. So one thing they do, the, the triumph... They, they big it up massively. So they pretend that um, the Judean captives that they're, they're parading through the streets are people who have never been a part, you know, they've never been belonged to the empire. They, um, they parade the treasures that have been taken from Jerusalem, but they also parade large quantities of treasure from the, the entire East. So all kinds of things that had not come from Judea, right. like kind of rare animals, great carpets with figurative illustrations, which obviously, you know, no Judean yeah would have had um all kinds of things like that uh, and they even parade ships implying you know a bit like uh they fought naval battles they kind of fought the equivalent of yes of the, the great naval battle that that uh, augustus had, had had won at actium um there had been no naval battles the most there had been um the romans had had chased some rebels down to the lake of galilee and kind of gone out in fishing boats to kill them all so that the, the sea of galilee was dyed blood a fishing was, boat would was look dyed so red, good but that's a, it in a, in a triumph. <laughs> no so it's massively massively overinflated they also issue a constant stream of coins with the the phrase judea captor on it so judea has been taken captive and judea is portrayed as a barbarian woman weeping underneath a tree uh, and this is a kind of standard image which is done to promote the the annexation of previously yeah they did that when peoples. they when they defeated Cleopatra didn't they, they did, Egypto yes. captor yes. but but they haven't but captured the, Judea because it well, was part of the empire so Dominic th- this is the intriguing thing is that um, a, a few decades ago a, a coin collector walked in to uh, to, to numismatists and and showed a coin that had been in the collection for quite a while and on that was the phrase Judea recepta. Judea retaken. And nobody had any idea that this coin had ever been minted. And the reason for that is that obviously it was done by an overenthusiastic but ignorant mint. You hadn't realized that you were not meant to be broadcasting right. that message. And so, yeah. you know, this is absolutely unique. It's the only example of it. And th- there was um, a, an inscription found on a, a triumphal arch that had stood by the, the um, Circus Maximus, the great chariot stadium where Titus basically says that he's the first person ever to have captured Jerusalem, which would obviously have come as news to to Nebuchadnezzar or uh, Pompey the Great. Uh, I mean, you know, this is people know that Judea had been a province. But they willingly uh, kind of... But they willingly suspend their belief because it's so crucial to Flavian status and propaganda. And so this is... And so, so, so the fact that... The Judeans have been defeated and they've become, become enshrined as the enemies destroyed by the Flavians is fundamental to the establishment of this regime. So that's and basically so, for them, Tom, yeah. what defeating Cleopatra was absolutely for Augustus yes. sort of foundational myth, a conquest yeah. myth. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Augustus celebrates his 
uh, emergence of Caesar by sponsoring Virgil to write the Aeneid and so on. Yeah. Um, what the Flavians do is they act as patrons for Josephus, this guy who had been a commander against them, who had hailed Vespasian, you know, as as the king who had come out of Judea, um, and who now writes a series of histories. So he writes a history of the war. He writes a history of the entire history of the Judeans. He writes um, a, a, a biography of an autobiography of himself, and he writes a defense of the Judeans um, and their their um, of their god and their practices. Um, against a pagan critic so so tom in many ways i would say he he's come out of quite badly from this podcast because he seems a bit of a weasel i mean he's basically yes. abandoned yes. all his his former cause thrown his lot in and become a flavian propagandist yeah so this is the image of him that he's a sinister turncoat uh, and a coward who has just jumped ship i i think this is incredibly unfair okay uh, i he is from a class of person in jerusalem who did not want to rebel against the romans uh he was you know, he bravely holds out at Jotapata, but when he gets stormed, he thinks, well, I, I, I never really believed in this in the first place. I think that we should be siding with Rome. He sees Rome as the agent of God. Uh, he, he, has, he, he finds no contradiction whatsoever in being a dutiful Judean, dutiful to his God and dutiful to Caesar. Yeah. So, and the, the histories that he writes even though they are incredibly self-aggrandizing. I mean, he's unbelievably conceited, kind of comically so. They're also quite brave because what happens in the wake of, uh, of, the, of the destruction of the temple and um, the Vespasian's triumph is that it's decided not to rebuild the temple. Uh, the, and therefore, the, the priesthood will not be reconstituted. And therefore, a whole new way of um, uh, administering the region has to be put in place. And what that in turn means is that um, it's not just the the Judeans who were cast as rebels, but the entire kind of framework of their belief that is seen as having been found wanting. And what had happened during the civil war in Rome in 69 is that their great temple, the Temple of Jupiter up on the Capitol, had been burnt. And so what the Flavians do, and they're short of money just as Nero had been, is that they the tax, the money that Judeans had previously contributed towards the temple in Jerusalem, they now have to pay it to fund the building of the, te- the rebuilding of the temple on the Capitol. And that is accompanied by, a, a, you know, one of the reasons why Josephus writes his defense of, um, of the Judeans against the pagan critic is that you're starting to get what I suppose you could, I mean, it's a kind of precursor of a lot of anti-Semitic attacks that will, will be to come. And this is brave of Josephus to do this. You know, he doesn't have to do it. So it's he's sticking up for his people. People saying the Judeans are anti-Roman or un-Roman. Or yeah, they're anti-Roman, they? yeah. that their God is ridiculous, that their customs are ridiculous, that they're kind of inveterate rebels, that they're standoffish, that they want to have nothing to do with other people. Um, a lot of the kind of um, abuse of Jews that, you know, is still kind of mainstream yeah. to this day. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's imperially sponsored for the first time. This hadn't previously happened. But because of the importance of the Judean revolt to the founding of the Flavian regime, it does. And I think that I don't think Josephus was in any way a coward. I mean, I okay. think he was very, very brave to write the, what he did. You just said a second ago the importance of the Jewish revolt. So we've had lots of questions about this. Mark Woodhouse, what's the difference between the Jewish revolts and other revolts? thoughtfully Catholic. Was there a qualitative difference between the Jewish revolt and other rebellions that the Romans faced? 
to what extent is this something uh, well has the place of this rebellion been completely inflated by flavor and propaganda or actually would you well, say this is the kind of thing that happens in the roman empire you know every 5 10 20 years in a different part of the empire there's a tax revolt people kick off they have to send in troops to quell it and then it, all the others are completely forgotten but this is the one that's remembered well has 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 the memory of this been and the significance of it been inflated by the yeah. flavians absolutely has it been inflated by another group of people who have a stake in putting a particular spin on this episode yes it has and those people of course are the christians because even before the destruction of jerusalem you look in the writings of paul and what you have there is a, a sense that um because christ has offered the perfect sacrifice to god there is therefore no no more need for the sacrifices that um judean custom prescribes should be done in the temple and that furthermore the temple has been replaced by the the, the body of the christian faithful that right the church is now the new temple and these are ideas that are current before the sack of the temple so the fact that the that the temple is then destroyed seems to the kind of you know the emergent christian community absolute evidence that this perspective is correct and that god has found the temple establishment you know he's weighed it in the balance and found it wanting and that is why in the long run the writings of josephus survive because they're of the christians they're preserved by christians because they're so important to for, for, for backing up the kind of christian idea that basically the, the church has replaced the temple as the focus of of god's um care so hold on tom let's say that uh you know constantine the great um he is one of a number of well people they are auditioning different religions we've talked about this in previous podcasts yeah you know it could have been isis it could have been heracles who knows sol invictus had it been one of those are you basically saying Josephus would be forgotten because he wouldn't be useful. We wouldn't be doing this podcast about the Jewish revolt because the Jewish revolt, like so many other revolt, provincial revolts, would just have been completely and utterly forgotten. I mean, jo Josephus is is being used by by Christian writers before Constantine converts, so it's possible that you know his text would have been preserved anyway. Yeah. Um, but definitely the. You know the the paradox that um, I mean, in a, you see, in a sense, it it kind of backs up what Josephus had said about Vespasian, that he's an agent of God. Um, this is exactly how the Christians do cast the Romans, and it, it you know, it, it it enables Roman military power, even when the 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 emperors are pagan, to play a role in this kind of great cosmic drama, which is how Christians understand you know the rolling through of history so that i think is is basically why the text of josephus survives yeah you know through um into the uh into the middle ages and then into the modern period um and if we didn't have josephus we'd know almost nothing about the context so what about there's another group fine but there's another group of people who might remember it which who are the jews themselves or the rather yeah. the judeans so well yeah this, okay, so first of all, I mean, there's so many questions here. What happens to the Judeans? Um, do they are they all still in Judea? Secondly, at what point do they become Jews? 
And thirdly, what role does this event have in their kind of sense of themselves and their unique history? The, the destruction of the temple and the, the annihilation of Jerusalem is, I mean, it's hard to think of a more shocking, destabilizing event for a, a devout Judean. Because without the temple, you can't offer the sacrifices that, that are mandated in right. Torah. So what do you do? There's, there's, you know, there's plenty of evidence that lots of them abandon their faith in their belief in the benignity of, of their God. Essentially that, that, you know, if they can't practice, you know, they, they, the temple is no longer there. They just give it up completely. But also do they feel let down, abandoned? Do you think? Completely abandoned. Yes, absolutely. But because this has happened before, so you know there are there, there are there there are scriptures and writings written in the wake of the sack of Jerusalem by the Babylonians yeah. that kind of try to make sense of this and to explain it. Um, and because you have the body of Torah still, that for, for for Judeans who want to stay true to their traditions provides them with you know more than a life raft. I mean, no, it's 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 something absolutely seaworthy that they can cling on to. What happens over the course of the decades that follow and, and the centuries is that the the authority that had previously been invested in the temple authorities comes to be invested in in teachers who are associated with institutions called synagogues. So these are places beyond Jerusalem where you gather to, you know, the the, the, the Torah scrolls are kept and so on like that. And there's there's one place in particular, a place called Yavne, which is now a, a, a suburb of Tel Aviv, where these teachers, rabbis, seem to have particularly congregated. And mm -hmm. there is this very strong tradition that this is basically where what we might call rabbinical Judaism, the, the, the form of Judaism that is practiced now by people that we would call Jews, it's where it, it, you know, it really puts down roots. Now, obviously, for the, for the rabbis, the, the memory of the destruction of Jerusalem is always there but they don't remember it as Josephus had done or indeed as Christians do as, as an event of history. They see it as uh, a, a kind of cosmic calamity that transcends history. And so you do have Vespasian and, um, and Titus do feature say in the Talmud, which is this kind of great corpus of, of writings that emerge um, through the fifth, sixth, seventh century. Um, so, there's a legend that uh, one of the rabbis, um, a guy called Yohanan ben Zakkai, um, he escapes the siege of Jerusalem in a coffin and he gets brought to Vespasian, who in this version is leading the siege rather than Titus. Um, and he gets out of the coffin and he hails Vespasian as, as the king of the world. And at that point, news arrives that Nero is dead. And so Vespasian grants... Um, Yohanan ben Zakkai and all the other rabbis, the right to go and set up their their base in Yavne. And you can see there a kind of distorted memory of Josephus's yeah. writings, which is really interesting. Even more, Titus is commemorated as, as you know, a monstrous figure. Um, so there is a story told that his plan when he captured um, 
the temple had been that he was going to go into the Holy of Holies, so that you know the most sacred place, you know, not just in the temple but in the world, and he was going to have sex with a prostitute there on um, on a kind of rolled out Torah scroll. Oh my word! Yeah, I mean, this kind of ultimate blasphemy. And when yeah. he gets in there, he stabs the the curtain that veils the Holy of Holies, and it starts to bleed. And Titus thinks that he's killed the Judean god, and so therefore he doesn't need to to go ahead with his blasphemy. But this doesn't preserve him because the rabbis say um, a, a a little gnat, as he was sailing back to Rome, flew up his nose all the way through his sinuses up into his brain and started gnawing on his brain for seven years and drove him mad until he died. Wow. Uh, and he's now, in, he's now in hell. And um, every day he is incinerated and his ashes are cast on the sea and then he's reconstituted. And so the process goes on. So this is clearly not history, but it, it's tribute to the kind of, you know, the, the potent role that the destruction of the temple continues to play in yeah. the imaginings of both Jews and Christians. So you've got all that weight. You've got the Flavian propaganda. You've got the, 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 the Christian idea that the destruction of Jerusalem shows the truth of the fact that the church has replaced the temple. And you have the, the, the Jewish, the rabbinical idea that um, the wellsprings of, uh, uh, of, of the study of Torah as it's practiced now and of the Talmud and so on is also rooted in the events of of the of this great revolt that you can see why it's such a kind of seismically important event in history but you can yeah. also see why it's really really difficult to get back beyond all those perspectives and to see what might actually have happened all and right I think, Tom, actually- I think you should though have a go and let's say it's very very speculative but what do you think? So, okay, we can't know, we can't tell all this, but do you think it really was just a, a common or garden provincial tax revolt that the Flavians and then the Christians and the Jews all exaggerated? Or do you think this was something more, more large scale, more serious? Right. So it's clear that there are you know, as I said, there are there are trends in Judean culture, in Judean society that lead Judeans to resent Roman rule. Yeah. And these are cast in theological terms. You know, the Romans are idolaters, pagans. Um, you know, they will be destroyed at the end of days. These are traditions that are kind of circulating, bubbling around. The idea of the Messiah is there. It is present. It's all kind of part of it. Um, against that, it's it's evident that lots of Judeans, and particularly Jerusalem itself, had, had absolutely flourished under Roman rule. Jerusalem has been very strongly favoured by the by, by a succession of emperors and Roman rule and and Roman governors. Um, they have been treated with absolute kind of kid gloves. Uh, there's a huge sensitivity towards. Um, Judean scruples, theological scruples, cultic scruples. Um, so, you know, there's a, the, for instance, there's um, there's a soldier who 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 bears his ass during uh, the Passover. He's executed. Um, the, another one uh, desecrates a scroll of Torah. He's also executed. Um, there are the, the coinage bears no Roman coinage. You know, yeah. There's the, there's a kind of concentrated effort not to put things on this coinage that would offend Judean sensibilities. And 
you know, a, a lot of Judeans recognize. And, you know, there are a lot of Judeans outside Judea, in Alexandria, in Rome. They're the dog that doesn't bark. You know, they do not join in the revolt. Um, and they, they can recognize that Roman rule is kind of good. You know, it's good for prosperity. You can travel yeah. there. You can, you know, good for trade. Good for trade. Globalization has its benefits. You know, as in globalization today, there are people at the bottom who tend to, to resent it. But, you know, you've, the, the, there's absolutely a case for saying that, that la, you know, most, most Judeans can recognize that Roman rule has been good for, good for, good for the temple, good for Jerusalem, good for their standard of living. Yeah. Um, and that, that ro- the Romans basically have backed them, say, against the Sumerians. Now, one of the complications is that the, the troops that the governors use are, are probably Sumerian. So when Gessius Florus, the procurator whose ex- tax exactions kind of initiates the, uh, the explosion, the soldiers that he has are probably Sumerians. So right. they're not Romans. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're serving the Roman army, but they're, they're Sumerians. And so there is that sense of a kind of a religious and ethnic rivalry that is, you know, it's a kind of a, a fire starter on the bonfire. So that's a kind of crucial part of it, I think. So I think you could say... There's nothing inherent, I think, within the currents of Judean society that made it inevitable. And the further evidence for that is that actually Judeans had had, had lived very, con- you know, I mean, not exactly contentedly, but they had, you know, they'd lived under the Persians, they'd lived under the Greeks, they'd been the bust up, you know, with uh, Julius Maccabeus, that's true. Mm. But then under Rome, again, there hadn't been, you know, there'd been no kind of particular disturbances and so i think that that suggest that that implies that the events are the revolt is set in train by contingent events and i think essentially the contingency is the fact that nero needs the money i think it's it's a kind of ripple effect from the fire of rome and it's the fact that the judeans for once because gessius florus is tax collector has gone there and you know, he has the backing, personal backing of Nero. They can't appeal over his head, either to Herod Agrippa, the local king, or to the governor in Syria. And I think that basically that's the problem, that resentment against the tax exactions result in the massacre of the Sumerians, the Sumerian garrison in Jerusalem. And that then having done that, they're then, you know, they're they're, they're stuck on uh, on the down escalator. Yep. which then starts to accelerate when they wipe out the, the, the legions that have come from Syria. And then, you know, the, the, there's no way back, really. Okay. Um, and obviously then you end up with this event that sort of retrospectively becomes a complete landmark, both for Christianity and, I guess, yeah, for, yeah. for Judaism. Yeah, and you see, so people have asked, um, you know, is this a bog-standard provincial revolt? I mean, in one level, clearly not, because it, it's still remembered to this day for the reasons that we've gone in. Yeah. But in another sense, it kind of is, really. I mean, if we had a Josephus to describe, say, Boudicca's revolt, where likewise you have, you know, a war is, is you know, of, of eradication is practiced against the Druids. Mm-hmm. The Druids are cast as people, you know, far more than, the, the, say, the, you know, Judean priesthood or the rabbis are. The Romans never attempt to extirpate the Judean priests. They never attempt to extirpate the rabbis. They do attempt to extirpate the Druids. Um, and against the backdrop of 69, you know, the year of the four emperors, yeah. this, where it seems that the Roman Empire is collapsing, you have very kind of similar apocalyptic movements elsewhere in the empire. So you, in, in, um, in uh, Lyon, in Gaul, you have um, a, a local Gaul who declares that he's, he's a god and that he's come to, to, 
to rule the world. He ends up being put to death. Um, and on the Roman frontier, um, the, the Rhine frontier, uh, you have a, a priestess who is apparently installed in a tower beyond the Rhine, uh, preaching the doom of Rome and the fact that all the legionary bases will be wiped out. Um, and again, you have this interface between provincial revolt and kind of apocalyptic visions. There's nothing distinctively unusual about what's happening in Judea. It's just the long-term ripple effect. But let's take this back then to where we started. There is one very distinctive thing, which is that what happened in the Judean revolt was predicted by our top geopolitical pundit from the very beginning of this story, Jesus Christ in the Gospel of St. Luke. Now, Tom, what is going on there? Why is it being so? Why does it appear to have been so accurately predicted in in Luke's Gospel? Or, or is there some other story there that I just I'm not getting because I'm not familiar with this stuff? Well, uh, I mean, it, it depends if you think that um, Jesus is a true prophet. Um, you know, maybe he foresaw what was going to happen, and that's an authentic record of what he foresaw. Or maybe yeah. um, he uh, extrapolated from what he wanted to happen. You know, there's there's clearly a lot of uh, apocalyptic language um, in the Gospels. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea that the temple might be destroyed um, is pretty important to um, how Christians, you know, even in the very early decades, uh, are, are seeing God's purpose. Or perhaps it's a retrospective prophecy that's attributed to him. Uh, and and that that particular passage is written after the destruction of the temple. I mean, yeah. all these all these uh, arguments have been made. So we just don't know. Yeah. I, so one other. Th- I mean, so so one last thing that I should probably we should probably just mention is Masada, because if the destruction of the temple has always played a, a, quite an important role in the, the way that Christians have seen the world. Qu- recently, the story of Masada has has begun to, to play quite a a significant role in the way that maybe not Jews, but Israelis. Well, because of being embattled, being surrounded, the self-sacrificial nature of the story, you can completely understand why, how in the 20th century, Israelis would take up yeah. that as their as a kind of founding myth. Yeah, so this story in, in the wake of the foundation of Israel becomes politically incredibly important. Uh, and there's this kind of um, interface between politics and archaeology in right. Israel that you get. So um, the, the great excavation at Masada took place in, in 1963, 1965 um, with uh, an archaeologist called Yigel Yadin, who was also the former military chief of staff. And so he felt, you know, just as Israel was surrounded by enemies, so also the, uh, the rebels on the, the, the mountaintop of, yeah. uh, of Masada had been um, surrounded by enemies um and this is an idea that then gets passed on to mosh dayan and he has a kind of swearing in ritual for uh soldiers in i can't remember what it is one of the one of the divisions of the israeli army who've who've kind of graduated and passed their training that they they do it you know they 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 graduate on the summit of masada and they declare that masada shall not fall again so this is, you know, it's very, it's been very, very important to, yeah. to Israeli self-image. I, I mean, inevitably, as with almost every other aspect of this story, it's it's probably not quite what it seems. Because as I said, 
Josephus, the only account we have of this episode is written by Josephus. And he had clearly, not only had he not been there for the siege, but he'd never been to Masada. His account of what was on Masada doesn't correspond to what the archaeology shows. And in fact, the idea that, um, you know, that it was rebels, people who were committed to fighting the Romans camped out on Masada seems almost to be the reverse of the truth, because actually what you have on the top of Masada are people who fled Rome. They fled confrontation with the Romans. If they'd wanted to fight the Romans, they wouldn't be up on that mountaintop. Right. And probably by the time that the Romans get there, they've been there for kind of, you know, eight years. Um, pretty harmless. I mean, they're not doing any any harm, but they, you know, they, they are standing outside the frameworks of Roman power. And so therefore, they they constitute rebels in the eyes of the Romans. Yeah. Uh, and they they send a single legion. It seems to, be, I mean, basically, it's probably a kind of you know to to keep keep the soldiers on their toes. It's a pretty routine policing operation, and they seem to have stormed it pretty easily. So it's almost certainly not the um, the heroic tale of resistance that uh, that Josephus and um, you know current Israeli yeah. perspective would have it. So Hollywood will not be getting in touch with you, Tom, for, um, <laughs> well, for script writing advice no, on probably not forthcoming probably not. Masada films, if there are any. Probably, but you know, but I mean, it's a kind of you know, it's a, it is of course a, you know a tragic and terrible story because yeah. you know you don't have to be a rebel for it. You know, they were they were clearly wiped out very bloodily, and it's a kind of horrible story. Okay, well, um, uh, that as usual turned into much a much bigger story than we than we thought it would. So. Uh, Hope you've enjoyed these episodes on the Jews versus Romans. Is it? I mean, actually, Tom, this is one last thing. Jews. At what point are the Judeans Jews? Well, I, th- I mean, I think it's legitimate to, if you want to call the Judeans the Jews. I mean, you know, why not? There's, there's nothing to stop you. I just think that using the word Judean prior to the revolt gives it situates them better within. The Roman world of the time. Okay, they they are provincials, and and I think it's better to think of them rebelling as provincials than as people who are inspired by you know a religion. Okay, fine. Thank you very much, Tom. That was an absolute panoramic, brilliant narrative. Uh, very enjoyable, and um, you can go and have a rest now. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul.
If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.